Welcome to the Two Lawyers and the Human podcast, a podcast for change leaders in the legal industry. My name is Jan Rogge, founder of Change.Legal. In this podcast, we invite legal innovators and explore how to make lawyers adapt and embrace change. What is holding the legal industry back and how might we introduce and leverage best practices from other industries? Our first guest and my co-host for today is Martha McCabe. Martha is the founder and CEO of Head to Head, a company connecting Canadian Olympians with Canadian youth, helping those youth to become the best versions of themselves. You can read more about Head to Head on their website, www.headtohead.ca. Marta is currently finishing her Master's in Innovation Management and Entrepreneurship at Queen's University, and you might also know that she's a two-times Olympian swimmer and former captain of the Canadian Olympian swimming team. Our main guest for today is Karen Dunskinner, co-founder of Gimbal Canada. Karen holds a law degree from McGill and also is a Lean Six Sigma black belt. At Gimbal Canada, she teaches lawyers how they can improve the way they deliver legal services. Her newsletters are amazingly useful, so make sure to have a look at their website, gimbalcanada.com, and subscribe to their newsletter. Okay, welcome, Martha and Karen. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Karen, according to research by Dr. Larry Richard, the, the lawyer of brain, uh, 90% of all lawyers score in the bottom half of the scale when it comes to resilience. And one of the downsides of low resilience is that you don't bounce back easily from failure. And Karen, you recently wrote a piece on resilience for a book called 50 Lessons for Women Lawyers. So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about resilience with you and why and how this low resilience issue has an impact on innovation in the legal industry. But maybe uh, you can tell us a bit about your story and the story you, you wrote in the, in the piece. Sure. So what I was writing about in the piece was this idea that we tend to resist change and because we spend so much energy resisting change and we see change in, in, in things in our way as obstacles instead of opportunities, we're, we're not we're not as happy. And I became much happier when I stopped resisting change and I just started riding with it, even though the path that I, I ended up taking was really quite unexpected. Um, my path to becoming a lawyer was really kind of a tortured one because I certainly never ever planned on becoming a lawyer. Uh, when I decided to go to law school, I didn't know a single person who was a lawyer. I didn't know anyone who was in law school. I just thought that I had to move away from pure sciences. I, as I was saying bef before we started recording, I actually have a life science degree from Queens and I spent a lot of time in a lab doing work in, in immunology and, and microbiology, which I did love, but I didn't necessarily love all the people I was surrounded by, and I didn't like the environment in the lab, and I was looking for something different. And I thought, okay, well, if, I, you know, if I'm not gonna go be a, a doctor, then maybe, because that's what I was planning, maybe I should try something completely different and let's try law. So, and I don't even know really why I latched onto that, but anyway, I did, and I did my LSAT, and I did well, and I applied to law schools, but it was before the internet because 
I'm quite old. So it was before the internet was a thing and there was no way to do any research on law schools except to look through pamphlets in the library. And I just didn't know anything about law schools, didn't know anyone who went to law school. So I just picked cities where I wanted to live and apply there and ended up at McGill. And that was actually one of the one of the best things that I could have done. It was a really big shift. Everyone thought I was going to be a doctor and suddenly here I was in law school. And I loved law school. I loved the way it made me think. I loved the people. I, I loved the academics of it. I loved the fact that I did it at McGill. So it was half in English, half in French. I, I, for me, it was fabulous. And so I thought, great, I'm going to love, love, love being a lawyer. So I went and joined. I started working with Heenan Blakey which is a large law firm with offices across the country, but I started here at the office in Montreal and uh, shifted from there to Steichman Elliott. But although Steichman is also a very large law firm, I actually ended up in their smallest office. And I went to, I had an opportunity to shift from working in Montreal to suddenly working in Budapest. So I was in Budapest, Hungary and and although it was a tiny office, we were working on a huge file. We were working on the privatization of the electricity industry. So huge file implications for an entire industry of an entire country. And I did like that, but it was exhausting. And it really opened me up, my eyes up to this, the pressure that I had felt in Montreal and felt equally in Budapest, which was that this was a crazy way to live. And we would work 36 hours at a time. We had secretaries on 12 hour shifts. Um, so they would work 12 hours at a time and go home for 12 hours. And we just stayed in the office. We slept in the office. We ate our meals in the office. And there was always this pressure to to work. Um, so from there, I moved into to back sort of into academics and, and we moved to London. I did most of a PhD in corporate governance of newly privatized industries in Eastern Europe. And from there, we moved back to Canada. And over time, I I'm, was trying to complete my PhD, but I was really missing the law. And I ended up starting a small practice serving multinational companies in Europe, doing the documentation for all of their uh, purchases, lots of mergers and acquisitions and, and, uh, and things like that across Central and Eastern Europe. And I had a few other little passion projects on the side, but I always continued to run and expand the practice areas in my small practice. And over time, I started thinking about the way that we deliver legal services, because I'd been doing it a couple of different ways. I'd been in big law, and then I had this big law experience. It was actually very small in Hungary, but still this incredible pressure to perform and, and do it, you know, always be at work and, and deliver things like work 24 hours to deliver something to a client, only to have the client say, oh, you know, you delivered to me at four o'clock on Friday. I know I said I needed it by five, but I actually went to my cottage at three, so it was too late. And I, I got frustrated with that. So so instead, I looked at other ways to think about how legal services were delivered. And, and um, my partner and I started looking at Lean Six Sigma as a different way to think about legal services. And, you know, Lean Six Sigma is, is a business improvement methodology that Lean has been around for a long time, Six Sigma as well. And they're just ways of looking at how you work to deliver good quality or excellent quality services better, faster, cheaper. And to me, this idea of a value-based client-focused perspective on legal services was where the industry needed to go. So when I was writing about resilience, I was looking at the different obstacles that I had overcome and the different opportunities and the different opportunities to change, even though that change, the changes I chose to make seemed like odd decisions from the outside because they were real shifts in my path. But I 
stopped resisting these opportunities. I stopped thinking about them as, as what am I giving up? You know, I remember my mother telling me, oh, you can't, you can't stop your PhD. You, you need to have that in your back pocket. I'm like, no, my back pocket's already full. It's got a law degree in it. I don't need another thing in my back pocket. I need to just figure out what to do with what I've got in my pockets already. Um, and then I, you know, for me that, that, that allowed me to become a much happier person. I stopped resisting all of these changes and these opportunities. Um, you know, if you come back to lawyers being low on the resilience scale, I think part of the problem is that there, there's a, a, a different way of looking at changes and opportunities in the legal profession. And because, because this research that shows that lawyers are, are, are lacking in resilience, it has a lot of knock-on effects for people in the profession and certainly has a lot of knock-on effects for how people deal with opportunities. Do you want to jump in? I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but I can talk about this for a long time. <laughs> no, I, I, th I think that the, 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 there's a, a paradox. One of the things you wrote was that accept every challenge and use your legal training to find your own creative solution. Roadblocks are, roadblocks are not failures. They're opportunities to improve. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the paradoxes is that we're trained to find, to see problems and, and find solutions. But on the other hand, we've scored very low on resilience. And that, that's something that's difficult to, to get for me. There's... I think when they're talking about psychological resilience, they're talking about things like the inability to accept criticism, the inability to cope with setbacks. It's described as you know, people who are more defensive, who are more um, thin-skinned. Mm -hmm. And I think the question for me, when I think about this research about resilience, because I also have, I also see that paradox. We, 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 we are trained to spot problems and then come up with solutions for them. But we do it within this very fixed framework. Um, and, and so even the creative solutions have to be within this framework. And maybe, so maybe that's part of it. Um, but I think there are, there are some really serious implications to this idea of low resilience. I don't think it stops us from solving problems, but I think it, it has some pretty serious impacts on anything that is outside of that framework that we work within as lawyers. So if you think about those criteria, those characteristics that Dr. Richards describes about being defensive or unable to accept criticism or you know, not able to cope with issues or problems or failures, um, and then you think about what lawyers do, you know, people rely on us to solve their complicated, their painful, their costly problems. And there's usually a winner and a loser in most situations. Um, you know, there are some corporate transactions where everybody feels like a winner. But, you know, in a lot of cases in law, losing means that you're letting somebody down. It means you've failed in some way. There's some kind of a setback. And for people that have this low resilience, it, it can seem like a bigger problem than it actually is. It doesn't mean you're a bad lawyer because you didn't succeed in a litigation. It may just mean that you had the wrong, you know, you, you were on the losing side. There was no way you could win. So if you've got somebody who's who's got low resilience, it's diff more difficult for them to overcome those problems. Um, and so that's there's a whole mental health element to this. And I know you, that's one of the things you've wanted to talk about. Maybe we should jump into that a little bit now. But there's a whole mental health issue around the lack of resilience and this inability to cope with failure that we see in the profession. For me, though, I think what's interesting is to think about this chicken and egg question. Are, are low resilience people drawn into the profession 
or does the profession itself create low resilience people? And that's that's an important thing to think about because um, when you're talking about mental health or when you're talking about legal innovation, like both of them need both of them are linked in a way to this idea of failure and inability to overcome failure, inability to come up with a, uh, a way to overcome your obstacles. Um, and, and are we as a profession creating this low resilience in people? And I, I wonder if that's what it is. Uh, I read. I, I read a really interesting article about resilience in last Saturday's Globe, in the Globe and Mail, and it was written by Michael Unger, and I can send you the link if you want, but really, he was looking at years of research around resilience and what it was, what it is about resilience, or what it is about our environments or about us personally that allows us to succeed, to bounce back in the face of adversity. And his conclusion is that it really has very little to do with us personally and much more to do with what's outside us and what supports we have outside us. So they were looking at people who were bouncing back or succeeding in the face of disasters like the Fort McMurray fire, for example, or other major setbacks. And in, in law, it could be a legal setback. Or it could be a, a career setback. And the people who were most successful after these setbacks were the people who had really important environmental supports. So for the Fort Mac people, it was access to bank machines, quick insurance claims, things that allowed them to return to their communities in a, a much more quickly and in a way that was that kept some continuity. Maybe their kids were able to go to the same school because they got their house back more quickly, that sort of thing. And his conclusion was to be resilient. These people needed healthy communities. And that got me really thinking before I even finished the article about whether or not law firms are healthy communities. And and I, I can I have a I have a couple of quotes that I, I have the paper sitting beside me circled. <laughs> I write on I write on newspapers all the time, so I have it. And and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read you this one thing. He was talking about physical communities that people live in. But then he says, this is just as true in the workplace, where no amount of personal development is going to help you succeed if your employer offers no support. As long as mountains of memos and paperwork accumulate, unrealistic deadlines are imposed, projects are understaffed, jobs are insecure, facilities are poorly maintained, and administrators are incompetent, workers will burn out and fail whatever their individual beliefs or behaviors. Every serious look at workplace stress has found that when we try to influence workers' problems in isolation, little change happens. And to me, that explains so much about why innovation fails in law firms and works in others, and why some lawyers' mental health is so damaged in law firms and not in others. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, Martha, do, do you see any parallels with what you're doing? Because you're working on... Resilience in 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 head to head. Yeah, actually, I have a I have a question because it's just an interesting parallel here, Karen. You mentioned you're practicing law in Hungary, and probably one of the biggest influences on my life was my swim coach, who was a Hungarian guy, and I would say he instilled. Um, that whole like life skill of resilience throughout my time training with him. And so I'm actually just curious, did you see, or do you see a difference between 
like maybe even just lawyers specifically in Hungary, that culture of resilience there versus here in Canada? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because when I think about what we had a really interesting uh, view onto what lawyers were like in Hungary versus us, because we shared an office. We joined forces with a Hungarian law firm. So in our office were a group of lawyers from Montreal and Toronto and a group of lawyers who were Hungarian from Budapest. And we, we worked all together as a, as a large firm or as a, for at that point in Hungary, a large firm. And they had a completely different attitude to life than we did. They thought we were completely insane. They did not understand why we would work past four o'clock on any given day. They had a much greater sense of uh, family and, or sorry, not, not obligation to family, or they had a, they felt much more comfortable saying, no, I'm just going home now because I have to go see my family. Um, we didn't have that. And we worked really, really hard. And we just took our, we brought our North American approach to work into our Hungarian office. And like I said, they thought we were crazy. And Hungarians had just come, we were there in, I was there in 1994. So they had just come out of what they called the changes, you know, when the wall came down and everything shifted in Eastern Europe. And they were building a new society. And there were huge changes from the amount of culture, uh, of social support that was suddenly ripped away from a lot of people to all this new capitalism and money pouring in. There's lots going on. And they just trucked along doing their thing and, and, and continuing to, to work at the pace that they were used to working at. And, and they looked at our North American way of working as completely unhealthy. But maybe there's something to their lifestyle, their view of, of the balance between work and life that, that gives them some additional resilience. I'd be I'm really curious to know what it was that your coach was able to instill in you. What, what, how, did, how did he or she, I missed that, but how, how did your coach make you more resilient? What, 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 did, what did you get? Yeah, I would say it's he, Joseph Nagy. Um, he's a world-renowned breaststroke swim coach. Um, he, I think just it was that support that you actually referred to earlier. It was just, you know, unconditional support no matter what the outcome. And it was pushing for, you know, take risks, try new things, try again. It's probably not going to work out the first time, but go back and go back again and then try something else and go back. And it was just that constant support and push to just keep going and not look back. Um, mm. It was always about looking about the next thing and, you know, pulling learnings from the last thing. And actually, Jan, to kind of answer your question, those are a lot of the things that I think what we're trying to do with head to head, we have the Olympians, you know, out speaking with young people to try and share some of those same um, lessons and really build that support and show young people that failing is actually, it's useful and it's probably a very good and necessary thing to do if you want to progress in anything that you're working on. I, I think you're right. I think that failure is, is really critical. And when we talk about legal innovation, which is really you know, my, my bailiwick now, is if people are not allowed to fail, 
they the whole innovation project ends up failing and and that's people need this space to experiment and you bring it back to this idea of of uh, developing a supportive culture, a culture in law firms that is healthier, that gives the supports that people need for innovation. And thinking back to the projects that we run, you know, we go into a firm and we look at a legal process or a business administrative process and think of how and, and work with them, a team of lawyers or a team of mixed lawyers and business and administrative folks on how to make these processes work more effectively to deliver better service to clients, to to deliver those services more affordably or to deliver those services with better margins, whatever their goals are. And in some firms, those initiatives work brilliantly and in others, they don't. And we're always looking for reasons why they don't. And part of it is that in the firms where they are successful, there is a culture of support. You know, if you think about an improvement project or any kind of project where you're taking people out of their work, their regular work to work on your improvement thing, you know, client work is piling up in the background. And in a lot of firms, there's no cover provided for that. So if you're working on your improvement project, you're still at the end of the day going to have to go back to your desk and do all the client work. There's rarely extra compensation for the improvement work or for any sort of innovation work. The deadlines that people face don't shift because they're working on some other element of value for the firm because it's not considered valuable enough that it's not being billed out to clients. So people are always in an improvement project, always on the precipice of being totally overwhelmed. And they, they can't put a lot of effort into change because nothing in their environment is supporting that for them. They might not have project managers. They might not have interest from the management committee. But if I look at firms that are successful, they have that continuous support. So they have some internal resources who are dedicated to change. Even if you need the lawyers to do the work, they've got project managers or at least a really dedicated, um, could be someone in IT, it could be a partner, it could be somebody really dedicated to pushing that change forward. And they've got a really vocal, obvious support from their management committee. You know, we had we, the best, one of the best projects that we did uh, in terms of, of the support that was so visible across the firm was in one of our clients. We were working with a client service team. So we were working with a bunch of paralegals who were providing a search support to corporate lawyers. So they were doing all the background searches and pulling all the documentation and things together that lawyers needed to go on and, let's say, sell uh, a company. So they were pulling all this stuff together and devote, delivering reports to the clients, uh, to the lawyers. And we looked at how they did that. And, and over the course of the, the project, they came up with, let's say, 20 different things that they wanted to change about their process. One of them had to do with uh, a paralegal who had a small limit on a firm credit card that she'd been given. And she would routinely have to purchase 10 different searches from different municipalities and she didn't have enough of a credit limit on that card to buy them all at once. So she would break them down into five separate transactions. That meant that there were five separate requisitions going through accounting, five separate checks that some partner had to sign. So there was all this knock on effect for something that she and she had no idea about that knock on stuff. She just knew she had to deliver these whatever, 10 or 20 searches. And so she had to break them down and she got her work done. And she was quite nervous about standing up in front of the group at the end to talk about this. And when we do a project, we always get the team themselves to present their solutions to management to say, this is what we discovered. This is what we think needs to change. This is how we'd like to change it. Please maybe do it. And 
this paralegal was very nervous to stand up in front of the managing partner and tell her that she'd been making this workaround for years that had been causing all these knock-on problems. So she, but she did it and she stood up and she told the managing partner. And the first thing that managing partner did was she grabbed a Sharpie and we do all these projects on, on the large, large sticky sheets on a wall. And she grabbed her Sharpie and she just signed off on that because the idea was raise her credit card limit. And she just signed off on it. She said, you take this piece of paper to accounting. It's got my signature. It says what you need. You take it to accounting and you get a new credit card. And it was hugely powerful for the team because they had this instant support. They knew that they could they could propose things that actually exposed them a little bit. You know, lawyers and people working in firms are very sensitive. They don't want to admit they've been making mistakes. And she had essentially been creating a whole pile of work for all kinds of other people. But she admitted it. She had a solution and the managing partner was right behind her the whole way. And that was, that's, what, that's the kind of support that you need to have improvement initiatives that overcome our natural resistance to change. So resilience is at least in part about creating a supportive environment. Do you have examples of, of cases where it didn't work or where it did work and, and how how you can start building such an environment within a law firm? Because the, the difficult thing is that in when it comes to legal practice, it's we're not allowed to make mistakes. So it's hard and should be right and, and you you can't make mistakes. But when it comes to innovation or improving your services, the the business of delivering legal services we need a place to try to experiment to learn and to to make mistakes and to try something and see what what comes out how do law firms in your experience combine those two uh cultures where in the legal practice you it should be right and in the legal service delivery uh you have to experiment. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems is that that people conflate this idea of we can't make mistakes with we can't experiment because they're thinking we can't make a mistake in the ultimate deliverable to the client. And that's true. You don't want to give the client the wrong advice. But a lot of that comes down to that information that comes out of the lawyer's heads. That's the real value add, you know, your knowledge about what works and what doesn't work and what is legal and what isn't legal. So that isn't really changing, even if you're trying to change what's happening outside the lawyer's brain. So if you think of the lawyer's value add uh, creatively, the way lawyers usually think about it, it's all this amazing knowledge they have in their heads. You absolutely want to deliver that knowledge without making mistakes to your ultimate client. But everything that happens outside the brains of the lawyers is a process and that process can be improved and you can experiment with different ways to, to make those processes work. And in fact, if you look at you look at the um, the records from, for example, the, at the, the Law Society of Ontario, most complaints against lawyers have nothing to do with the actual legal advice and everything to do with all of the processes that surround the delivery of that advice. So maybe it's things are delivered late or uh, information is released to the wrong person, or they billed me for something that they never told me they were going to bill me for. All of that is process. And I think it's something like 75 to 80% of the complaints made against lawyers 
are made about the processes and not about the actual delivery of legal work. So if you can get people to understand that what you're talking about improving is the delivery of service and nothing is touching the high quality of the legal work, the, of the actual legal advice that they're giving, then you're not really telling people that you're going to experiment in some way with the actual legal advice. You're not experimenting with that. We want them to continue to be able to offer that great legal advice. We just want to find better ways to deliver it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does to me. Last week, we had a discussion with Kat Moon and, and Kelly McGroom, uh, where there, there was something parallel where Kelly said, there's there's a time and a place for experimentation. Uh, and when you're training, you, you experiment and you should experiment a lot. And when it's, and that's maybe similar to our process and, and service delivery piece. And when it comes to race day, there's, you shouldn't do, you shouldn't experiment on, on race day. And that, that's probably, there might be a link there between legal service delivery and, and, and legal practice. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, so I would agree with that statement. There's obviously certain times to experiment, certain times not to. There are even though certain races, so even performances, if it's in law or whatever it is, um, cases that you're working on that you, for us, we actually will still experiment in certain races. It's just you're not going to go to the Olympics and get into that Olympic final and experiment. Um but one thing I was actually kind of curious about in sport, it's talked about all the time, resilience, building these support systems, um, you know, having a team behind you. These are things that we talk about all the time. And that's why I think it is just talked about so much in sport resilience as a whole. I'm just curious, is resilience talked about in law? Like, is this a topic that is brought up and teams are discussing in that whole concept of having team support and having fellow lawyers and colleagues that are like, like deep knit teams behind you? Is that something that is spoken about? My perception and my experience is not as much as it should be. And in many cases, not really at all. And I think that's part of what makes law firms sometimes quite unhealthy communities. Someone, I can't remember who, described a law firm as a whole lot of individual lawyers practicing law connected by central heating. We, we tend to work in silos. There are some practices that really do lend themselves to teams. Uh, but even within that, people tend to work on their own little things. And part of that, I think, is the structure of law firm partnerships and the way that people are rewarded and compensated within law. The, the, there is a great deal of pressure to just work, work, work. Um, and even at the partnership level, it doesn't get any easier. There's still all this pressure to work. Uh, there is a growing recognition of the importance of teams and how important those teams are to supporting people in, in the way that they practice um, with respect to this idea of building resilience uh, from a mental health perspective. I think that is really sorely, sorely lacking in, in law firms, in the profession as a whole, not even a firm. I mean, even in, in solo firms, it's a huge issue. I have one friend, um, he's a, a Twitter friend. I have lots of Twitter friends uh, who spends a lot of his emotional energy on 
finding ways to address the problem of suicide in solo practitioners because law in those cases can be extremely isolating. And there was a recent case uh, in the United States of a, a partner, a senior partner at one of the top firms in the U.S. So we're talking huge firm where you'd think there would be supports given. And he committed suicide and he committed suicide because that to him seemed like the, the only really it seemed like a better solution than failing to meet the expectations of his client and of his firm. So he was under so much pressure to deliver on time and he was so afraid of being late or failing to deliver or whatever it was that his client needed that he felt that it was easier to die. And that's horrible. That shows an incredible lack, even at some of the largest, most well-resourced firms of, of, of openness, of talking about these issues, of saying, you know, we need to think about resilience. We need to think about this environment that we've created where people are rewarded by how much time they spend at the office. As soon as you start compensating people and rewarding people and advancing them for how much time they spend at the office, then they're just going to sell you time, right? They're not going to, they're not going to take time for self-care. They're not going to, they're not, they don't have a support team that is behind them, you know, allowing them to do their work more efficiently and more effectively necessarily. There's just this pressure to work these crazy hours, to meet your billable hour targets, which are often quite high, and to put in FaceTime at the office and to, to, you know, to be tough and to consider your clients to be more important than your family. Uh, there's huge time pressure. All of these things are, are extremely toxic. And we don't talk enough about what it would take to make that firm a more supporting place so that we could have the lawyers within it be more resilient. We don't, I don't think that, I mean, Matt, Jan, maybe you have a different experience and you have practiced law in Europe. And so your experience may be completely different than mine. But from what I see, there is not enough time or energy spent on the resilience at a mental level, forget mm. the whole innovation piece, but that resilience at a mental level. No, I, I, I agree. Uh, I think the, the, the pressure might be just a little bit lower in Europe. We didn't have to do 2,000 hours. We had to do 1,800. <laughs> okay, that's not much lower. But, <laughs> um, but, but there, no, I think mental health is as much as an issue in Europe as it is in, in, in North America. Or uh, there is a lot. I know a lot of unhappy lawyers who are not happy with what they do. So that it's 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 an issue. I don't think it's something that people talk about a lot because it it isn't. It's there's still some kind of a stigma, um, but yeah, it, it, it is an issue. And and uh, my question is how how would you maybe to both of you how how would you define success when it comes to increasing resilience? Is there a way to measure increased resilience? You you can measure mental health. But but resilience isn't just about mental health. It, it is. It's also something that it's it's a trait that allows you to become a better lawyer and and deliver better legal services. So how how could we define success and measure results when when we try to improve resilience by building 
better support networks. I think that from I'll, I'll answer from a law firm perspective, and then I would really like to hear Martha's perspective for how you measure it in sport. But you know, from a law firm perspective, I'd be looking at if, if you put some of these supports in place, do you have lawyers who are more involved in the in, in some of the innovation projects? So do you have lawyers who are coming up with more ideas about what they could change? Do you have have lawyers, paralegals, legal assistants who feel free to say, hey, you know what, if we did this a slightly different way, it would have this impact. It would have a better impact. So I'd be looking at how they, what kinds of changes the firm is making and where those changes are coming from. And that's what I'd start measuring. How many projects are they actually completing? You know, it's quite, what we find is, is that in some firms, they, they are quite keen to take on a project in a particular practice group but they're very bad at implementation. So I'd be looking at how many projects they follow through on. People can come up with great ideas, but they need to be able to follow through on them. So that means that you have to have a culture where people are able to make some mistakes and, and learn from them, where they can pilot things out. And you know, even if they start really small, we tell our clients to start small because if they practice on some small, low effort, low cost improvements that have a big impact, and they experiment with a few different ways to, I don't know, maybe the way that they deliver a particular service to a client, or maybe it's the way that they book uh, their conference rooms, or maybe it's the way that they do their expenses. There are lots of little things that you can get people to to start thinking about. We, you know, we're, one of the things that we encourage a lot is to use a, a Kanban board, so using visual management for your workload. But we get people to start really small on their own workload practice in their own office and their own you know privacy where they can make mistakes and try things out and it doesn't matter because no one sees them then they can teach their juniors to use them then they can break bring it out more widely so we get people to start small and move out from there and so we just i would think if you want to measure whether or not you've built a culture that supports change you need to be looking at how many changes are being thought of, how many suggestions are being made and how many projects are being completed and in a way, it's not even so much the return on those projects. Like I don't, I'm not talking about, you know, you want a firm that's going to say, okay, we're going to put in a brand new document management system, and that's going to be our huge project. And it is. It's such a huge project that it takes years to implement, and they don't see a lot of return on it. I'd be looking at how many little tiny projects were successful, were implemented, did people experiment with, and that's how I'd be measuring whether or not you've got. Um, an environment, a culture in your firm that allows people to try and fail. Yeah. 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 I was just going to add to that. Like, I think, um, to kind of measure that from my experience, which is obviously a totally different kind of venue. Um, I think having a group of people who are really willing to take risks and, are not afraid of failing. Um, and so obviously like we've been talking about that comes from that increased support. Um, but also I think it actually goes back to Karen, one of the points you made right at the beginning, which is like not resisting certain challenges and certain changes and becoming more accepting, um, with yourself and with like these kind of risks that could happen or bad things that might happen. Um, and that you kind of mentioned at the beginning allowed you to be more happy. And I think having that attitude and being more accepting will, will kind of like trickle down to all these other things where you are then willing to take more risks. And instead of necessarily seeing all these as failures, you're seeing them as 
you know, positive challenges and you just have this better, like more optimistic outlook. I think that kind of is that culture of really just being more resilient when you have all those little pieces um, in a row. And especially when you have multiple people with that outlook, um, I think that that only helps build even more resilience, if if that makes sense. I do. I agree. I think that it builds on itself. You know, if you've mm-hmm. got a couple of people experimenting, trying something out and it works or it doesn't work, but there's no bad consequence. Like if it doesn't work and nothing bad happens, then other people around and go, oh, OK, I could try that. And if it didn't work, I'm not going to you know, lose my bonus or mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be. So I think you're right. I think that if you have if you get some some if you get the ball rolling, in effect, which is what we try to do with a lot of our projects. We often try to start on the business and administrative side of a firm because it's not client facing. And so the lawyers don't instantly think they're going to be somehow disadvantaged in front of their clients if something goes wrong. Um, you know, and then we get the ball rolling on that business and administrative side and suddenly the lawyers are like, Oh yeah, that worked. And I could try it too. Um, you know, it's just having enough. It's almost like there's like a tipping point and get to a point where there are enough people in a firm that are willing to take that chance and say, yeah, you know, we're going to try it. If it doesn't work, that's okay. Uh, then, then you do build a, a stronger, tendency i think towards innovation but that's i think it, i think to me it still comes back to this idea of communities because that's building a community of people around you who will look at you and go oh yeah well done for trying that as opposed to oh god that didn't work absolutely i mean at the end of the day we're human beings and we need connection and we need each other to progress in anything like that's we've seen that just through evolution alone. Right. So I think that's like, I think that's just a key component of resilience and just like anything that humans want to move forward on. Yeah. So I think the the, the conclusion I made is that if we want to increase resilience, we should create unconditional support networks and allow people to make mistakes or fail or experiment and, and, and do something, take risks and to make sure they take risks and, and try to encourage people to do it. I wanted to add one thing, which to me signified some really, a really big hope or a positive that I see in the legal culture. <coughs> and it has to do with Mr. Justice Gagnon, uh, sorry, Gascon who was one of the judges on our Supreme Court. And a couple of weeks ago, he went missing. And I don't know if you remember reading about it in the news, but it's a pretty big deal when one of your Supreme Court justices goes missing. And when they found him, he opened up about the fact that he had depression and anxiety and he had a panic attack that led to his going missing for a few hours. And instead of being condemned for that, he received some very vocal support from Chief Justice Wagner who welcomed him back onto the bench. And yes, Mr. Justice Gascon is retiring, but until he retires, he was welcomed back onto the bench, despite the fact that he'd been very open about his depression and his anxiety. And in previous generations on the same court, we had a justice who was forced out of the court because of depression and he received no support. So I just, I do think it's showing that there are some shifts and some really important cultural shifts. And if we have the highest levels of our justice system saying it's 
nothing makes you bad at your job. Uh, you know, being, being depressed is not going to make you bad at your job. Being depressed or having anxiety doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a justice. Then it creates more of a healthy community. So it goes back to this idea of there are people who are able to be open about suffering a setback and overcoming it. So to me, it was a great example of how there is a culture of change in our profession. We need a lot more of it, but having it at least start at the highest, highest levels of our justice system was really refreshing to see. Yeah, I think you guys have both said it really well. It, it takes talk at all levels and especially at that leadership level to start anything moving in that right direction and to build that team support and community support and acceptance of all of these things that we've been talking about. So I think it's good to see that it is moving in the right direction. Okay. Thank you very much, Martha and, and Karen. Um, yeah. Talk to you soon. All Thanks, right. Jan. Thanks, Jan. Take care. Thank you.